0: As the Delta variant surges across the United States and the world, some people have raised concerns about the spread of other variants that could even be vaccine-resistant after the Delta variant. Ultimately, what this highlights is that COVID is a global problem that requires a global response. So as the United States is looking at this deadly wave of COVID that, again, originated in another country, how can we think through the questions of what we can and should do to vaccinate the world. To address these questions, we have a return guest discussing the ins and outs of what such a campaign might look like, what it would require, and if it's feasible. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome, podcast listeners, to another episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Please remember you can rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast provider. You can also find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte and on the Robertson School of Government's Facebook pages. So we've been kind of going back and forth, Afghanistan, COVID, Afghanistan, COVID, with some of these podcasts. Oh, and by the way, before we get into it, uh, views expressed, as always, don't represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. So we're back on COVID, and I wanted to bring Mary Sarabroff back onto the podcast. Mary, welcome back. Thank you. And I wanted to discuss with her something that we had sort of touched on at the end of the last podcast that we did, which was our deep dive on the Delta Variant podcast, which is about vaccinating the world. The first question that I, I have, Mary, for you, is as somebody who's been tracking this. So we tend to focus on sort of where the US is with respect to COVID vaccinations. Can you give us something of a, of a world tour? How do we compare it to the rest of the world? What's, what's going on in the rest of the world? And what lessons can we learn from, from global vaccinations about sort of the efficacy of, of various different vaccines?
1: The world is kind of split into the haves and the have nots when it comes to the vaccine. And as to be expected, the U.S. and the EU probably are the most vaccinated. Israel is doing pretty well, too. Canada is still kind of playing catch up because they had a shortage early on. But in places throughout Africa, the vaccination rate, fully vaccinated, is less than 2% for Africa overall. Wow. Varies by country, but that's... startling figure in Latin America it also varies by country but there are places there countries there that have less than 3% and some of those aren't that far from the US border Mm. and given the global society we live in through trade and visiting refugees immigrants business you know all of this what happens in Africa and Latin America is going to affect us here in the U.S.
0: Right. And so I guess going, going to that, you can't close the borders indefinitely, which is the, the sort of implicit proposal that some people are making. If nothing else, there's, there's a trade in good, goods that needs to happen, and that involves movement of people as well. And I guess, could you unpack for us some of the reasons why Americans should not only care but potentially if, if the government says we need to spend tax dollars on this, say, okay. But why, but why is vaccinating the world so important to us here in the United States?
1: As long as this pandemic exists anywhere in the world, we run the risk of a new variant emerging that could be resistant to the current vaccines and also to the drugs that we have to treat people who get sick. And then it could spread like wildfire Going back into the rest of the world, in you know the idea of, oh, what happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas with a virus like this, a pandemic like this, it doesn't stay in one country or one region. What happens elsewhere will affect us. And so it's to our own self-interest to make sure the pandemic is squashed everywhere in the world. Right I mean, from a Christian
0: perspective, of course, this is a humanitarian catastrophe, and we are we are called to help not just those within our, our border, but you know where we're possible and where we have the capacity outside of that. But I think also it is important to just remind people that pandemics don't care about borders, you know plagues, things like that don't don't really care about where we may have drawn the line on the map because there is that sort of global level to it. And so uh, you were telling me before we started recording that they're even concerned about an, a new variant now that might be more vaccine resistant and equally contagious with with Delta. C- can you tell me what you've seen about that so far?
1: Yes, it apparently originated in Colombia and it has spread to 39 countries. It's called the MU, M-U variant. And they're watching it closely. It's got the potential to be more contagious than the Delta variant, and it could possibly be resistant to some of the immunities that have built up through vaccines and prior infections. And this is something a lot of people think, well, I've had the I've had the an infection from covid nineteen, so I'm immune. If some of these variants come out, you're no more immune than someone who hasn't been vaccinated at all or who's never gotten the disease
0: now the vaccines themselves and this is a complicated issue so i want you to help us sort of break it break down for us when we start talking about some of the new platforms for vaccines some of the new technology we talked about the mrna stuff last time and some of the other things that are being developed my understanding is that there is a capacity that 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 something could be built very quickly to respond to that evolution, but then there are a lot of unknowns and there's a lot of uncertainty. So can you number one, break down, you know, how the, how the people making the vaccines might respond, but then number two, what are some of the unknowns that we would then have that, that would need to be studied before something like that could be rolled out?
1: some of the vaccine makers are already looking at how to tweak their vaccines and they're testing them against the variants as they emerge. Pfizer is even creating new variants in the lab to test their vaccine against, to see what they need to do to be able to respond to those variants. So they're trying to keep ahead of it. Mm -hmm. And there are, with some of these vaccines, they may work against new variants. It depends on how the variants emerge. Others, they may just need to do what is relatively a simple tweak. There's a new vaccine coming out by Novavax that uses a nanoparticle. And what they had said early on is that given the technology they're using, it would not be a major feat to go in and tweak it to respond to different variants. However, you still have to study them. You have to test them in people to make sure they really work. What works in the lab may not always work in the real world. The other question is, how does it work in someone who's already been vaccinated or who's already had a different form of COVID-19? So that could raise safety issues. How many vaccines can we get <laughs> to fight off this pandemic?
0: Yeah, so it's, it's possible, but there would have to be a lot of testing. So even if they could develop it quickly, it wouldn't be rolled out all that quickly to the general population, just because there would, there would still need to be that clearance that it would go through.
1: I think it depends on how big of a, of a tweak was needed. Gotcha. And if it's a totally new product, or if it's something that's building on what's already there, it might be able to go faster. Okay. So it, it just depends on, on what they need to respond to whatever emerges.
0: And so when you talk about Pfizer sort of working working with new variants in the lab, I know there's a lot of concerns about, and I don't want to necessarily get into the uh, the origins of COVID debate with with gain of function research and things like that. But I'm going to just go ahead and assume that Pfizer's containment on that is probably a lot better than what was, was being used at some of the bat coronas in uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology. I'm, I'm guessing that they've got everything very, very tightly locked down on that.
1: I'm sure with all of the rumors and concerns that have been expressed that Pfizer is keeping a very tight lid on this. Yeah, absolutely. So
0: with that being said, we've got these areas that are, are virgin fields in terms of, of the variants where the vaccination rates are low, mutations seem to be happening. So you could see both in a humanitarian sense and even from a sort of prudential national interest sense that this is something we probably should do, right? And so let's assume in a perfect world that you can actually get both parties to agree that this is something that that we need to put a lot of effort into it and that this is something the U.S. should support. You can get the American population on board with it, meaning that miraculously somehow our politicians. Get good enough at messaging to explain the need just as clearly as you have now. Maybe, maybe you could. They could hire you to uh, to, to to do that for them. But so let's let's assume that we we kind of get all hands on deck. Everybody agrees to do that. How then do we do that? Because as I understand it, there are some real logistical hurdles that would have to be met if we were going to try to push for more sort of global vaccinations.
1: First of all, the World Health Organization has set up a platform. To get vaccines to other countries to to the lower and middle income countries Mm -hmm. and the EU, the US and multiple other wealthy countries committed to donate vaccines to this is called COVAX to this platform, as have some of the companies that have developed the vaccines. Mm -hmm. The problem is. A commitment to donate is not the same thing as an actual donation. Right. And to date, the U.S. has given more vaccines than the rest of the world combined. Wow. It doesn't always get to the countries that really need it. And it it was hard to tell by the way the White House response team phrased that commitment, whether these vaccines have actually been delivered or if they've just been promised. But there are a lot of issues involved in getting these vaccines to where they're needed. First of all, it goes back to when the vaccines were approved. You had asked me last time about how we were able to get these vaccines out there so much faster than we have before. One of the issues, aside from the regulatory speed, was the way they scaled up manufacturing. Mm. Normally, when you're developing a drug or a vaccine, you don't start the manufacturing until you're absolutely positive that you're going to have a marketable product that's going to get approved. Right. Because there is a huge investment in people, in money, time, and the opportunity cost in developing or scaling up the manufacturing for that particular product. Uh, Keep in mind the manufacturing you need for an aspirin or for a blood pressure drug or a biologic or a vaccine. All of these products require different manufacturing processes, different manufacturing inputs in terms of your active pharmaceutical ingredient, which we call API for Mm -hmm. short, the, the drug substance any other excipients that you need to make that product, you know, what's going to carry it. And the equipment that you need to make sure everything's sterile, your cleaning processes, your vials, syringes, you know, all of these other, th- the packaging, all these other things that are part of a drug that we don't think of you know we just think oh we're taking a pill or we're getting this vaccine and we don't think of all the other parts that we have to have to make that vaccine possible Mm. so normally when a new drug comes out they roll it out in one market at a time or in and they have you know they get their approval and they scale up to address one market or a handful of markets. They're not looking at scaling up for the whole world. And they're not thinking, hey, we've got to come up with a billion doses right off the bat. They've got time to do this, and you know they're not going to need a billion doses of, of most drugs or whatever. So in this case, companies, and several of them, that their development of vaccines got halted because they weren't working. These companies invested millions of dollars in manufacturing at the same time they were trying to develop their vaccines. All of that money was at risk because if their vaccine didn't work, that investment was for
0: nothing. So wasn't part of Operation Warp Speed, just to interject, wasn't part of of the promise there that if you invest money in in manufacturing, essentially the government was going to cover the note if it didn't work?
1: Not exactly. The government was contributing to the manufacturing. Pfizer did not take government money. Gotcha. Because it said it would have slowed down its process if it had. But- by being part of operation warp speed there also was that idea that the government would buy doses from them if they proved successful you know there was this promise of you've got this ready market we're going to buy x number of doses from you so by starting this manu- getting the manufacturing scaled up before they had a drug a vaccine approved that really sped up having one ready to market. So, so that was a big part of why we could do this so quickly. But it also meant that they had to go out scrambling for all of the accessories, if you want to think of it that way, you know, the vials, yeah. the packaging, the stoppers, the syringes. And you think about it, the glass, the medical glass market, is designed for what's needed at the time. Yes. Not like we had glassmakers out there with a whole bunch of product on a shelf just waiting for a pandemic to come along. Yeah, we've got a billion extra vials here, you know? So there were shortages. There were shortages of vials. There were shortages of syringes, shortages of the protective clothing that manufacturers had to have their employees wear when when you increase the demand and you scale up this level of manufacturing you're just putting a lot of strain on your supply chain there were just natural limits in how much could be produced at day 1 and these companies have been adding more manufacturing capacity as they've gone along but they've had to bring it up to speed some of that is training staff getting people geared up we've had problems because one of the big issues with manufacturing something like a vaccine is ensuring quality consistently it's got to be built into the manufacturing process we assume that our drugs are you know manufactured in a way that ensures quality. But it has to be built in. It's not just something that comes automatically. And you can't just go into a factory and throw some equipment in and flip the button and, oh, we've got vaccines. You know, it takes a while. It takes a while to produce the active pharmaceutical ingredient, the substance. And, you know, there are limits on how much of that can be produced at a time based on the capacity of your manufacturing. So these companies have gone out and they are partnering with other companies, bringing them up to speed. Some of the places are in India. They're in other parts of Asia. There are a lot of plants in the US and in Europe, places that are developing these drugs for various markets, these vaccines. But that means because of the supply chains, and the time it takes to bring these new ones up, the, the capacity keeps increasing, but we didn't have that capacity for, vac- for millions of vaccines from day one. It, it's something that continues to grow. There also, uh, another element is individual country regulation. Like the U.S. and the EU immediately Reserved or paid for bought uh, millions and millions of doses of vaccines from the companies that, you know, like, well, it was AstraZeneca in the EU, but also Pfizer and Moderna in the U S it was J and J Pfizer and Moderna. And that, meant, given the constraints of manufacturing, there wasn't a whole lot left for other countries who waited to place an order. Canada had a shortage immediately. The U.S. gave vaccines to Canada. We gave vaccines to Mexico too. The EU put in place export restrictions saying that none of the vaccines that the countries in the EU were getting could be exported to other countries unless the companies could demonstrate that they were meeting their orders for the EU. So it's like we come first, then everybody else. There's another element here that comes into play and that's liability because just the way the vaccines are, yes, there will be side effects. There always will be side effects with any drug, with any vaccine in the U S we've got the vaccine compensation plan to help people who Obviously, you don't know if you're going to have an allergic reaction to a vaccine until you've taken it. Right. And there are those rare instances where people are harmed by it. The U.S. has a compensation plan that takes care of that rather than the companies being on the hook. So the companies, well, and the companies also can get insurance to protect them from liability or to cover their liability with drugs that are known. But with something that is novel, like these vaccines, it was hard for the companies to get liability insurance. Mm -hmm. So they weren't keen on having their products used in a country where there was no liability protection because it left them wide open. So sometimes in their contracts with individual countries, they would say, you know, you can't export this. Without our permission, or unless you're exporting it to a country that has granted us liability protection. So that's another hurdle this regulatory, the legal, the regulatory issues and the legal issues. And then we had a problem with, like, when India had a huge surge, they clamped a, an export restriction down. Mm-hmm some of the products that we had been relying on India for to go into vaccines were no longer available. Right. And India was a big producer of some of the vaccines. Well, all of a sudden those vaccines aren't available because they're being used in India. So these are issues when you have a surge in a particular country and they're of course, worried about their own people they will clamp down on exports and the world health organization has pointed this out well the world trade organization has too that export restrictions and regulatory issues often get in the way of sharing these vaccines even if they're donated right another problem is the storage of the vaccines and the distribution the pfizer vaccine has to be kept at very cold temperatures refrigeration, not just refrigeration, but you know, almost deep freeze. That makes it difficult for some countries to store it and to get it out there out in remote areas where they may not have reliable electricity or the the freezer units or whatever. The other thing is some countries don't have the public health system set up. To distribute the vaccines and get them out there. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You've got some countries who maybe have a very limited supply of the vaccine who are almost using it for political purposes, denying it to their opponents, keeping it for an elite. So it depends on which country you're talking about what the issues are.
0: Gotcha. And one one question with that, that that also occurred to me, I know there's been a lot of talk about China and Russia sort of sending their vaccines, which don't work as well. Has that created, do you think, a sense of vaccine hesitancy maybe in, in some of these countries where you know we're getting vaccines from these other places and they're not working? Does that sort of poison the well?
1: I don't think it's vaccine hesitancy as much as questions of safety and efficacy. China and Russia were using Vaccine diplomacy, basically, you know, let's inf- win <laughs> friends and influence enemies. And it wasn't always donated; some of it was sold. Right. The problem with with Russia's, well, with both Russia and China's vaccines, is they have never been examined by the FDA, by Europe's EMA, by the regulatory the transparent regulatory processes that we rely on we don't know the data from those vaccines other than what their governments tell us what we do know is it appears like their efficacy is not as high as what we're seeing with the vaccines we're using here that doesn't mean they don't work right it just means is not as high of efficacy we don't know what side effects they produce, because we don't hear about those. Yeah, we do know in Russia they're giving boosters already. They started giving them a month or so ago, and it was within like six months. I, I think they're doing it in a six month span.
0: And I, I had heard once, I think back in in May or June, Seychelles, which is a small island country, had gotten a, basically almost fully vaccinated from sinovax and then literally like two weeks later, had a major outbreak of the original variant. So, so bad that they had to lock down, which really speaks to that efficacy point where Sinovac is concerned.
1: Right. And that's, again, where we don't have the data from any of the China studies, All we can rely on is what the government has told us and then the real world data that we see. And and then another thing, you talked about vaccine hesitancy. I think one thing that did affect vaccine hesitancy was early on when there were issues in countries with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which was one of them that got out there pretty Widespread. Uh, part of that was because India Serum Institute was partnering on it, so it was being used a lot in in some of these other countries, and and the concerns about the blood clots with the thrombocytopenia, which have since it, it's not like that's gone away, but we know how we know to look for it and we know how to treat it. Right. So that's not the issue that it once was. But when it first happened, it caused. A big hold on use of that vaccine, and it—I think it did contribute to some vaccine hesitancy in some of these countries.
0: So, okay, there are a ton of challenges, um, and it sounds like a process that would be very complicated and very expensive. So, let's start thinking through—you know—from a solutions perspective. First of all, on the on the government side, are there practical steps the U.S. government could take that would help in terms of promoting sort of vaccination globally whether that is resources you know regulatory change diplomacy on our end like what are the practical things the US government can and should be doing to help with this
1: one thing is if states have extra vaccines that they're not going to be able to use before the expiration date the federal government should help them get them to play to countries or at least to other States. They can use them instead they're being told, you've got to throw them away. Mm. That's a waste. Yeah. And then I think we can do more to work with countries to alleviate some of the liability issues and some of the export issues to help shore up the distribution systems and take care of some of the storage issues. One of the things we could do is encourage the companies making these vaccines to not just increase their capacity in the US, but to do more partnering with companies in other countries. Now, I know there is a concern about that. If you're going to operate in another country, it depends on the country, China is very bad at this. They insist on all technology transfer. Mm-hmm. They want your IP, and they don't always respect the intellectual property rights. Another problem that we have is this is a policy issue that the country is going to have to deal with, and, and it involves boosters, and I think several countries are going to have to deal with. You've got people, public health officials in the U.S., in Europe and elsewhere, the World Health Organization pointed this out. They were condemning the use of boosters in the US and other places, except for people who are immunocompromised, when people in other parts of the world don't even have their first dose. They said it's like giving a life jacket to somebody who already has a life jacket when these other people are drowning. Now, that's a policy issue. Mm-hmm. Because if you're giving a booster that's the same dosage, that's basically, you know, that could be used as a first dose for someone else, are we being greedy? Mm. Are we protecting ourselves? You know, how much protection do we need when by not giving it to other people, we're running the risk of more variants emerging? Mm. It's kind of a... A balancing act.
0: Yeah, it's a real catch 22.
1: Yeah, and it is a policy question. And it looks like our public health officials are definitely leaning on, well, we need it for us. Yeah. Before these others get it. it. The same thing happens when you talk about vaccinating for children. And again, with the World Health Organization and others, they've said we need to get the most vulnerable populations in other countries vaccinated before we worry about vaccinating children in the wealthy countries. Again, these are policy decisions. And I don't know, uh, you can make an argument on either side of it, depending on which perspective you come from. But there are moral questions there. Mm -hmm. And obviously, I don't have the answer to those.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, one one potential answer would be if we could significantly increase the capacity, such that we could do both. Right. But the the challenge there is, and I guess you know you would know more about this. Are there caps on on the level to which we could increase the capacity for you know manufacturing the vaccines? And then are there things the government can do to alleviate some of those caps or, or bottlenecks or limits, so that they're not faced with that? at least not as acutely faced with that challenge
1: in eliminating those caps. It's a ramping up. It's not like you can go from zero to 120 in one second, right? It's going to be a gradual ramp up. Now I know in Latin America, they're looking at establishing a regional manufacturing hub Mm -hmm. to do vaccines and drugs in the future. It's going to take them time to do that. Is, and they're not going to start from scratch. They do have a few places that they have manufactured vaccines. Some of them are different types of vaccines, but it shows experience with vaccines. So they can do this, but it's going to take time. We can do that in other parts of the world too, but again, it takes time. So in that time frame, the question still is, do we vaccinate all Americans? or do we help more with some of the other the administration is saying we can do both and we are doing both but the question is how much are we doing to help others in are we doing enough yeah how much of column
0: a how much of column b and then also you know how much domestic capacity can we increase i mean you would assume right that most of the companies within the us are probably running at at max capacity, but is there anything we can do to help them increase their capacity domestically so that we could, you know, at least help with vaccinations in some of those countries where, you know, you could, you could get on a plane and probably fly to some countries in Latin America or fly vaccine to them quickly enough that it would be sort of within the window.
1: Yeah. And I I think there are things that they could do and, it's hard to say exactly what they are doing because the numbers keep changing from day to day. And for a long time, much of our drug and vaccine supply came from other countries, Mm -hmm. especially our APIs. They were coming from China. A lot of our drugs, especially our generics were coming from India. And because of the way countries slapped on export restrictions, and you could use this as a political tool It was a realization that we cannot rely on other countries to produce our drugs and vaccines. Mm. We need domestic supply. That is going to create a a demand for much more manufacturing in the U.S. than what we have today. Mm. Did you know that there is no penicillin manufacturing in the U.S.? Wow. It's in China. Wow and you can see how that could be a national security issue if you go to war with someone they could just say hey we're going to cut off all your antibiotics
0: yeah now that's that's really interesting too so we could be looking at a significant effort to increase onshore domestic production of pretty much everything in the in the medical industry
1: Well, at least essential drugs. And that's a lot of countries are making lists of essential drugs and essential APIs that they need to make those drugs that they need to have onshore. Russia has done that for years and other countries are doing that. The U S is starting to do it, but this regional development in Latin America is kind of an example of that. Gotcha. Recognizing that we, okay, we don't, Necessarily have to do it country by country in Latin America, but we've got to have the resources here. And that also helps that there's a natural disaster. And there again, countries are starting to recognize we can't have all of our eggs in one basket because if you have a natural disaster in that place, you lose your drug supply or your APIs. Right. This happened when Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is a big manufacturing hub for certain kinds of drugs and medical devices. Those were all damaged wow. during hurricane Maria and it caused shortages. The problems we had with saline, a lot of that was coming from Puerto Rico. There was a huge shortage of that afterwards. And it, is, it was a wake up call that maybe we shouldn't have all of one drug or one medical device manufactured in one little regional area, but that we need it spread out. And that's one of the things that this Latin American effort is looking at is we shouldn't have it just in one country in Latin America, but we need it in, in several.
0: Okay, so it seems like there are a number of different policy responses, but this is gonna be a very, very difficult challenge, This this idea of sort of global vaccinations. We've talked about companies and we've talked about government. You know, if you look at a lot of the developing world, I would say a huge percentage of their healthcare sectors in the faith-based arena. I know, you know, Rick Warren at one point went to Rwanda and he basically determined like 95% of healthcare that was was being provided in the country one way or another was being provided by faith-based providers. As we think about this global vaccination effort, what role do you see faith-based organizations, uh, whether it's you know, international relief and development organizations or, you know, local churches in in some of these countries, what role do the faith-based organizations have to play in this effort toward global COVID vaccinations?
1: I think they can help a lot by getting help with the supplies, help with the distribution. One of the things, though, that I think faith-based organizations have missed is when you rely on volunteers to go in and deliver things administer them it's kind of a hit or miss thing is like okay it's when we come instead of and there's not i think it's honorable that people are doing that that they're volunteering their time and helping where they can but it is more important to train the people in that country yes to be able to do this so that it is consistent and that they have the public health system they need when the next emergency comes along, and so they're not reliant on volunteers coming in from other places.
0: No, that, that's that's an excellent point. And I know when when Rick Warren did go into Rwanda, one of the things they did is they they trained local health workers in each of the different churches over there to actually do sort of administer basic medical tasks. So I, yeah, I think that's a huge. That's a huge component.
1: Well, when we were in Namibia, that was an issue that was brought home to us. We weren't there for medical reasons. We were there for a different purpose, but we were seeing people were talking about what happens out in the villages, the remote areas when volunteer groups come in and build a building or whatever, they're basically taking jobs away from the local people. And they said it would be so much more helpful if they would come in and give us the training and, the resources to build this ourselves. So we've got the jobs. Our people are benefiting from it because at the time they had very high unemployment. It's like, we need these jobs ourselves, you know, rather than relying on volunteers to come in and build a church or build a school or whatever. It's like, help us with the resources so we can pay our own people to build these. And I think the same thing comes true for health things. If we can help train their people, people on the ground, so that they've got the resources they need. Yeah. Because this won't be the last pandemic.
0: No, no. And it might be a while in, you know, some some countries, you know, some of the poorer countries, it might be a while before they can produce their own vaccines. But at a minimum, you can train people to administer them you can you could build up their capacity to produce some of the things that are that are helpful you know so maybe some of the medical elements of the medical devices and supply chains as much locally at least as they they have the capacity for
1: right and now we can't there are in the countries that are using the vaccines as political tools there's nothing our government can do about that other than to try to use persuasion and pressure to get them to make this equitable yeah And we can't do it by ourselves. That's something that the UN, Europe, all the groups need to put pressure on these countries to stop using vaccines as a political tool.
0: Well, and also I'm thinking from a religious freedom angle, which is where a lot of my research is, you know, you could very easily see a situation where vaccines are being denied to religious minorities in some of these countries.
1: Correct during this pandemic a lot i know a lot of christians in some of these countries have been denied jobs they can't provide for their families during lockdowns and they're getting if this was a country where they were already facing persecution covid became another reason to pile the persecution on
0: right yeah it's a, sort of a multiplier effect yeah so there's a lot that needs to be done. I think this is sort of a sobering reminder of the fact that COVID is a global problem. And, you know, I guess I, I come back to what you said, sort of the top of the podcast. You know, we can think that we've got this thing licked in the United States. And if, if we don't deal with it globally, it can come back to bite us over and over again. And so, you know, as much as we can, I feel like it's it's not only in our humanitarian interest, but it is very much in our national interest if we want this nightmare to be over to to help out with the global efforts and to play a leading role in the global efforts as much as we can and so hopefully you know those conversations are being had and you know there's there's some consensus i hope uh, about the importance of that uh, if nothing else because we all would like this to be behind us
1: yes and i think we see this just in our own neighborhoods you know this summer we were kind of lulled into thinking oh we we're getting people vaccinated life is going to go back to normal And now the Delta variant is here and people are dying again in greater numbers. People are being hospitalized. People are wearing masks again. It it shows that we have to keep on the lookout for this. And we all have to do our part within our neighborhoods, our state, our country and the world. It, It doesn't, it doesn't stop just because, Hey, I got vaccinated or, I'm social distancing.
0: Right. All right. Well, again, a very, very educational, informative podcast, and and I think I can say again, you probably at the end of it know more about what goes into the vaccination process globally than you did before. So, hope that's been educational, and hope it you know demonstrates really the the importance of this. Uh, Mary Sarah Broth, thanks for coming on the podcast again. And that's going to wrap for this episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on all the social media mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. And for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off.